You must tell me all your secrets. Remember, we must share everything together. Twilight world of unspeakable horror. You must die. Everybody must die. Sample, if you dare, the deadly passion of the vampire lovers. The vampire lovers. Perverted creatures of the night find their victims everywhere. The unsuspecting merrymakers in glittering ballrooms with their young and tender throats. The sleeping beauties whose troubled dreams turn into real terrifying nightmares. For God's sake, save her! So welcome back to Girls, Guts, and Giallo. I'm Annie Rose Malamet, and I'm really excited because today I am joined by another lesbian vampire. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm talking today, of course, to Miss Malice. So Miss Malice, you're the first other lesbian vampire I've had on this podcast. It's super exciting. Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah. So, and today we're talking, of course, about one of my top three lesbian vampire film favorites, The Vampire Lovers from 1970. And I've done my two other top three films already on the podcast. Oh, I've done The Hunger and I've done Daughters of Darkness. And we're rounding out the trilogy of my favorites today. So... There's so much to say because I feel like I've been studying this film for so long. But before we get into that, Miss Malice, who are you? What do you do? What are you about? Um, I'm a high femme les drag performer in Brooklyn. I'm a femme C and, of course, a lesbian vampire enthusiast. <laughs> um, and I'm part of this dragon burlesque collective called switch and play um and i also uh perform as a cast member in sasha velour's nightgowns uh production and for the past four years with switch and play i've been involved in producing this show called vamp which is just a celebration of of it's a celebration of all things queer decadent and bloodthirsty and that's a show i'm really proud of so of course i'm very happy uh to talk about lesbian vampires always and to get to talk to you about this film in particular today is very exciting i'm a long time lurker admirer um of your work and of the podcast and um I also love the other two films that you've mentioned, The Hunger and Daughters of Darkness. So very excited to round out the trilogy together. Yes, it's so exciting. I mean, it's just, I know we have like 
such internet crushes on each mm-hmm. other, always lurking. And you like you just sept- sipped something out of like a blood red chalice. <laughs> yes, a- I, I'm trying to. I know you know. I'm trying to dress on theme. This is my like Carmilla nightgown. Uh, it's very reminiscent of the black gowns that Ingrid Pitt wears. And I'm dr- drinking a little beverage out of a, a red chalice. Amazing, <laughs> amazing. Uh. So, the vampire lovers. When did you first see it, and we, what did you love about it? Because I know that this is also one of your favorites, and I know mm-hmm. you've also you recently screened this one, right? I did. I recently screened it at NYU. I got to do like a cute little talk about it and do sort of midnight movie style commentary uh, because of um, a friend's kind of getting me that gig in the cinema studies program there as one of their their programming evenings. So uh, that was really fun. I was trying to remember the first time that I saw this film because I thought that you might ask me that uh, since I'm familiar with the podcast. And um, I think it was probably about 10 or 12 years ago i think i saw it right after college wish i had seen it much earlier than that um but early in grad school i was a victorianist and that's when i was first introduced to la fanu's carmilla and once i read the the novella and was completely obsessed i realized that there were all these film adaptations i'd always been into like spooky things and vampires but had somehow not been introduced to this world until that moment and so i just went on a mission to watch every film that i could find of this genre and i think that this was like the third one that i saw so i think my very first was roger vadim's blood and roses um which i also love yeah um and then i think i saw jean roland shiver of the vampire and then i think this was number three and it just made such a huge impression on me Uh, it's and for me i think like what do i remember most about reacting to like it's ingrid pitt you know ingrid pitt is just everything she is the archetype she is the ultimate image of like the lesbian vampire um to me, especially like from this particular period. And so I think I just became really obsessed with Ingrid Pitt. (laughs) I mean, what is not to be obsessed with? Like, yeah, just rewatching this. And I saw this film, I want to say, like six years ago. So Mm -hmm. I... And I just remember, like, I hadn't seen it before, surprisingly. And Mm -hmm. I just, I think it's one of my favorite Carmilla adaptations. It's it's completely not true to the novella at all. (laughs) But it's so, the production is so beautiful and the women in it are so beautiful and their scenes together are just so good and sexy and it's just like a femme for femme dream like it's a total femme for femme fantasy and it has like the really lush beautiful hammer production but so much sexier than anything that hammer had done before this moment um, it's just got so many beautiful nightgowns that I covet. So many good nightgowns. Yeah. Ingrid, and you, Ingrid Pitt's eyeliner is so on point. Oh my God. Everybody's makeup is so good. And I know that you've also recreated some of the press release 
photos, <laughs> which if you guys haven't seen the press release photos for the vampire lovers, they're so iconic. It's just like Ingrid Pitt in this like sheer white nightgown with like all of her victims surrounding mm-hmm. her. And it's oh, it's just one of my favorite photos ever. The promotional images are equally as important to the film itself, just like as an aesthetic object that really speaks to me. I think the promotional images are a reason why the film is my favorite, even though they're so misleading. They really like are. what the film is actually going to be like. And the trailer and like, I know if you've heard like the radio spot that they did on ab- about the film too, when they were promoting it, they really did promote it. Like you were going to encounter this, this coven of deadly blood nymphs that they're going to really be working together you're going to like encounter all of these women in full force and of course that's not quite what the film is like at all disappointingly i would love to see the version that the promotional images promise but those images are just so incredible they're just like draped over coffins and they've got that like dreamy 70s like edit to them in terms of the lighting yeah yeah they're so good and like they're it's kind of almost as if they're playing on jean roland like who does do that in his films (laughs) so they're kind of like it's like the british version of that where (laughs) it's just like not quite as racy because jean roland is a french director so (laughs) those are (laughs) Who was making lots of porn. Yeah, who was, like, making literal porn. (laughs) Or, like, Jess Franco, who was, who did Vampiros Lesbos, who was also making, like, pretty much literal porn. And the female vampire. Right, and the female vampire, right. So those films, like, are definitely more titillating, (laughs) more sexually exciting than this one. But... The Ingrid Ingrid Pitt is in this one, so it's just you can't. We can't. I'm gonna gush so much over her when we talk about this film because it's like I mean she is the film. So the vampire love right. (laughs) The vampire lovers from 1970 um it's a british gothic horror film it's a hammer production so hammer films do you want to say a little bit about hammer films and their background um oh gosh i mean i guess i could i have some notes here also yeah you know more than me about that i so so hammer 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 films it's a british film production company based in london it was founded in 1934 it's best known for its series of gothic horror films uh, made between the mid 50s and until the 1970s so Many of these, it was kind of inspired by like the Universal monster movie series. Um, they they have classic horror characters such as Frankenstein, Count Dracula, and the Mummy. Uh, so Hammer reintroduced these characters to audiences by filming them in vivid color for the first time. So that's that's what Hammer is really known for. They kind of fizzled out in the 1970s, like right after this film came out, like about 1974. So this is one of their last great 
horror films and it's part of their um so they started in 1934 and then they had kind of a revival in the 50s and it's part of their last films in their classic revival period Mm -hmm. um and it's because gothic horror films became just kind of unpopular like there just wasn't a big market for them anymore unfortunately (laughs) yeah and they they had done so many dracula movies aren't there like seven or eight there's so many yeah i think there are seven i haven't seen all of them because they're less interesting to me than the carmilla karnstein trilogy for obvious reasons but i've seen i've seen a few of them um obviously since they're so iconic and and famous and so i think they had like really just like run out of dracula material like christopher lee was so over it christopher lee was done like (laughs) he was famous so christopher lee played dracula a lot in the hammer films and he was famously just kind of fucking done doing that Mm -hmm. so that's the other part of it um this film was directed by roy ward baker it's starring Ingrid Pitt, who plays uh, Carmilla slash uh, Marcilla slash Mirgala, and mm-hmm. uh, Peter Cushing, another Hammer regular, uh, George Cole, Kate O'Mara, Madeline Smith, Don Adams, and John Finch. Mm-hmm. So The Vampire Lovers is based on the Sheridan Le Fanu novel, uh, Carmilla, or it's a no- the novella Carmilla. So I wanted to talk about Carmilla a bit briefly. What is the plot of the novella Carmilla? Oh, me? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the novella is, it's sort of um, positioned as this like found document in a sense, something I really love about it. It's framed as this case study. It's sort of ambiguous, like who is who's reading it and who's encountering it. We have sort of someone introducing it by way of also introducing Dr. Hesilius's introduction to it. So we already have this sort of um, layered effect um, that we, that is common to Gothic narratives. And then once we get past that, we are plunged into this first person account from the point of view of the victim, Laura, Uh, as she details her experiences with Carmilla, the lesbian vampire, who uh, finds a way to insinuate herself into her household as a guest, um, with a sort of like clever ploy of a carriage accident, which is something that I actually love how the the film Vampire Lovers takes that up. Right. And... um, I mean, even before that happens, Laura, we have the sense that Laura has a strong connection to Carmilla because she's sort of haunted by dreams early in her youth of like a cat that's stalking her and she sees a beautiful woman hovering over her bed and she she feels a piercing in her breast, right? And then when she finally meets Carmilla as this, this strange guest who gets invited in um, many years later, she instantly recognizes this is the beautiful woman from my dreams. And Car- what I love in the novel, it's so funny too, is Carmilla's like, yeah, yeah, totally. I recognize you too. You were in my dream. Isn't that so weird? Isn't that weird? 
<laughs> yeah. One of my favorite parts. But yeah, so we sort of um, get Laura's firsthand account as uh, she details her intense feelings of both attraction and repulsion uh, to the beautiful Carmilla, who is dark haired and languid and loves chocolate and sleeping in, which are highly relatable. Yeah, same. (laughs) And tastes. And um, there are just so many incredible scenes with, you know, Carmilla just they're just like brushing each other's hair and like heavy breathing and lusting. And I don't know. It's just, I just love the novel. It's so good. And the thing about the novel, so it's published in 1897. So it predates Dracula by 26 years. It's 1872. 1872. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So Carmilla is 1872. I've got my dyscalcula. Uh, yeah. switching things. Yeah. So it's 1872. And um, so it predates Dracula by 26 years, right? And it's it's very, you know, kind of traditional gothic novel, like you were saying. And it's, you know, which a lot of gothic novels explore themes of repressed sexuality. And mm-hmm. this one really explores uh, lesbianism, the repressed yeah. lesbianism from Sheridan uh, Le Fanu, uh, was an Irish author. Uh, and he, it's definitely infused with a lot of gay panic, like very, which is very typical of, uh, you know, anything from this era <laughs> that has to do with homosexuality. Yeah. So in a way, like it's quite, you know, quote unquote homophobic, even though they would not have that concept then, um, but has been reappropriated over and over and over again as this very sexy story. And go ahead. Oh, no. Yeah. And I was just gonna say, like, at the same time, I think, like, there are just so many ways to enjoy it. Like, it feels open ended. Like, it feels, yeah, it feels like there are so many ways in which it doesn't feel as conservative as it as it could have felt. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, when modern readers, when I've had people read it, and they they report back to me, and they're like, there's just like, not enough lesbianism. And I'm like, you guys have to understand that, like, at the time, this was extremely scandalous. <laughs> like yeah. these women heavy breathing and like even approaching talking, being attract talking about being attracted to each other. Like it's that was a big deal. And did you see the most recent adaptation of Carmilla that came out in October? Is that the one that uh, is out of like the YouTube series? No. So there's also a YouTube series, but there's also um, I saw it at the Brooklyn Horror Film Festival and it's directed by Emily Harris and it's the truest adaptation of Carmilla I've ever seen. So it's really beautiful. Yeah. So I, yeah, if you can find that, definitely or maybe, you know, I'll cut this out, but maybe I can send you the screener. Uh. <laughs> I would love to see that. Yeah, it, I really liked it. It's a lot slower. It's like not as, you know, it's not supposed to be um, 
mm-hmm. exploit exploitation or titillating or anything. It's very much more of a introspective mm-hmm. kind of story. But uh, yeah, and this this film, The Vampire Lovers, is one of the many adaptations of Carmilla that happened during the glut of lesbian vampire films that really happens. I mean, it starts with Dracula's daughter, but then happens more like starting in 1960 with Blood and Roses, which is also a Carmilla adaptation. And then, you know, we just kind of get this story regurgitated and and retold over and over again in these films. So Carmilla and also uh, Countess Elizabeth Bathory are very common lesbian vampire characters in this yes. cycle. Yeah. And worth noting, of course, Ingrid Pitt as as the Countess Elizabeth Bathory in um, Blood Countess. Yes, which is another film that I love. Uh, yeah, so Ingrid Pitt plays a quote-unquote lesbian vampire again <laughs> in um, Blood Countess. So that's, that's another really beautiful gothic hammer film. So... I love, love, love that film. It's really good. Yeah. Not to be I confused with Countess Dracula. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, totally. Oh, wait, no, maybe I was thinking of Countess Dracula. Is it Countess? I mean, there's like these films have like the same names over and over They also again. like often release these films under like 10 different names. Yes. Especially, especially like the Jean Roland films are like... It might be Countess Dracula. I don't know. I think it is Countess Dracula. Okay, yeah. So, you know, Countess Dracula, Blood Countess, like Rights of the Blood Countess. Like these films, they use the same names over and over again. Um, And I won't pretend I don't love that because it's very funny. Yes. (laughs) So this film is the first in the Karnstein trilogy. Which includes Lust for a Vampire and Twins of Evil, uh, which are also, you know, I love those films, but the lesbianism is much more subtle going forward. (laughs) Yes, that is the thing. I also love those films. Um, They are incredibly beautiful. I think that Twins of Evil, I prefer to Lust for a Vampire, Mm -hmm. but it's so... Like, they're just not really even worthy of being called part of a Karnstein trilogy. Like, they. Vampirism is just. Especially, I think Lust for a Vampire is so disappointing because they literally set it at an all girls boarding school. I know. <laughs> You're like, come on, guys. Like, how could they squander the <laughs> <I know>. actual <laughs> there? Yeah. Like, the. It's really beautiful. Like, I actually use a lot of the images from Lust for a Vampire when I promote the podcast because I love those images. But yeah, it's not like Vampire Lovers actually has explicit lesbianism, <laughs> whereas yeah. Lust for a Vampire and Twins of Evil, it's much more heavily implied. Yeah, Twins of Evil, like, really has almost nothing. Yeah. They have the one part where one of the twins is biting the breast of a victim. And that's kind of the only thing that they have. Uh, So, yeah, this was the first one. And it seems like they kind of lost their their courage, their chutzpah going forward. Because this it was daring and a bit scandalous at the time for its explicit lesbian themes, this film. 
It was very shocking. I think that like it's easy to forget, but it was those nipples were extremely shocking. Those nipples, kind of, like, yeah. <laughs> and um, I feel like I remember reading somewhere or hearing somewhere that like the censors did flag this as potentially an issue, like the lesbian content and the nudity and um, that the Hammer production kind of justified it by saying, oh, okay, it's like true to the novel, which I find so interesting considering, as you referenced before, that so many people involved with this production were so interested in downplaying the lesbian content and acting as though didn't think there was any lesbian content in the original novella. So it's fascinating. I know. So like Ingrid Pitt and a lot of the other actresses, um, they don't think of this as a lesbian film or they didn't. Like Ingrid Pitt claims that she played the role as not a lesbian, but as asexual. I know it kills me. It Girl. Lesbian empire that like all men felt so uneasy around. It's just one of the things that's so delicious about this film, and like her husky voice. Yes, just like she's got big lesbian vampire energy. I mean, and to hear her disavow that after I had already fallen in love with the film and then tried to dig a little deeper, I was just devastated. Like, girl, Ingrid, it's. It's just one of those things where it's like straight people will do so many backbends to like pretend that something isn't gay. This is yeah. a very gay movie. Like they straight up kiss in it. What are you talking about? That they're that yeah. she's asexual. It's just one of those things where you have to like write it off. You're like, okay, like whatever. <laughs> I tried to persuade myself that like she didn't really believe that and that she was saying that to like try to avoid the film from being like further censored or something. But I just, I don't think that that's true, but that's what I like to tell myself. I mean, who knows? Like she knew that she read the novella, like she, she read it very closely and there are all these recordings of her reading it, um, which are also really beautiful. Oh, I haven't heard those. Yeah. You can find some on YouTube and there are some on my like special features DVD that I have from like Shout Factory. But um, so she knew the source material intimately. And it's quite clear in the source material, I believe, as well. Um, and so it's just wild that she did that. Yeah. And Madeline Smith also said <laughs> like, oh, she's like, I'm as far away. I really couldn't be less lesbian than I am. I mean, I am totally disinterested <laughs> in females. In that way, I really felt it was distasteful. I hated doing that. Loathed doing it. Ingrid did too. The Vampire Lovers was very steamy. I just... That's so funny. I didn't know those quotes. I knew that she... I've, I've seen, like, an interview with her, like, from more recently where she reminisces about the role. And she didn't say that exactly, but she said that she was just so clueless. Like, she was just a true, innocent ingenue who, like, didn't know anything about sex in the world. And that it just didn't ever even occur to her that the film could be gay because she didn't know what a lesbian was. She was I mean, so Catholic. This quote kind of seems like me thinks the lady doth protest a little too much. <laughs> like it's, and then, yeah, right. Like, okay, we get it. It well, just like, it, yeah, I love how she's like, I love men or like whatever. Like I'm not interested. I love men. I'm not interested in women at all. Okay. Nobody asked in the same interview that I watched. 
she talks about how much she loved doing the vampire lovers and how she had only fond memories of the films. But then she's like, you know what? You know what really makes Hammer great? It's the men. The men make it great. And I'm like, how could you watch the vampire lovers and say that? I mean, honestly, They're I guess I have like, a biased point of view. And I don't really <laughs> care that much about men on screen. But... Not at all. Yeah. <laughs> but it sounds like the exact same thing. Like, it's about the men, I promise. It's very, like, no homo. Yeah, like, okay, girl. They're barely in the movie. <laughs> so They're barely in the movie, and I love that because, like, to me, that feels true to Carmilla, the novella. There's barely any men in Carmilla at all. Like, there's the father who's clueless. There's the doctor and... Yeah, I mean, let's talk about the plot. Let's get into the vampire lovers and talk about how pointless the men are in this. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Let's do it. So it takes place in 19th century Styria, which is in mm-hmm. Austria, right? Um, and it takes place in 1790. And we open with a memoriam uh, kind of, we open with this narration by Joachim von Hartog, who is <laughs> mourning his sister Isabella von Hartog. And he's talking about how he avenged her death. And he's he's telling us this story. So we open with, you know, very like misty, gothic, typical Hammer production. Uh, graves, abandoned, yeah. ruined castles, uh, and he's he's telling us this from the ruined castle of the Karnstein family, and he's laying in wait for a vampire to rise from its tomb. This was kind of an interesting mythology, and I wondered what your thoughts about this were. Were like that the vampire wears this shroud, and also that the vampire cannot return to its grave without the shroud. Yeah, I was going to say the same to you. I'm so curious what your thoughts are about it. I, ha- I don't believe I've encountered it in any other film. Me neither. I understand. It's very much like they invented this for the film. And I think some Hammer fans and horror fans felt really frustrated by it. because They're like, okay, you just added another totally different rule. Like, where did this come from? Where did that come um, from? It very much. It doesn't make very much sense. I've all. never heard Especially that. Especially when he like does that move where he's waving um, from the castle and he's like, "Come and get the shroud!" Like I taunted it, and it's like she's clearly already shrouded. I don't get it. Yeah, it it seems like a plot device that they added to get them to have an encounter or something. I'm not sure why he wouldn't just do like any of the things that you see from the other films, like putting a crucifix in her coffin so that she can't return or, you know what I mean? It's just, right. like, interesting. Right. I, to me, I feel like the only thing I can think of is like, it's about the garment, you know, like it is about the garment in this moment. And uh, I love that she is just like completely swathed in this like flowing chiffon fabric that appears to be lavender. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's very beautiful. Like, the vampire, we see this vampire, like, shrouded, but there's also, 
another shroud (laughs) and she can't return to her grave without it so he steals it and he follows this shrouded vampire as it like wanders the streets in search of blood and uh she kills some drunk guy and uh but then she you know she returns to the castle and she can't return to her grave because hartog has the shroud and like you were saying he taunts her with it so she goes after him inside the castle and because she's shrouded we don't actually know what this vampire looks like yet and she takes off this shroud and it's revealed to be this beautiful blonde woman uh she is so iconic yes like it's a shame that she has such a short role but i think that like the images of her as this blonde in the beautiful flowing sheer white gown which is just like to fucking die for frankly um, it's it's so iconic. Yes, and she descends on him and uh, her bosom, like her big <laughs> breasts. So the other thing about this is like all the women, women in this film have ample bosoms. <laughs> and oh, yes. They're all exposed constantly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Go ahead. Actually, not to take it back to Madeline Smith. Oh, go ahead. This anecdote where she claims that like a few weeks before production, they um, called her up and told her that her breasts were inadequate for the film because she was like too like frail and just like didn't have a voluptuous enough bod. Uh, so she, as she tells it, she gorged herself on yogurt for two and a half weeks and miraculously grew those spectacular breasts that we see in the film. Oh, my God. <laughs> Which is so wild. That's so funny. I They are gigantic. Like, they are beautiful and gigantic. And I just, like, do not believe that two weeks of yogurt could do that to you. But, like, I don't know. I mean, I love dairy. I I think (laughs) maybe she maybe got them done. (laughs) I mean, they're... She swears they're natural, but it's so funny. I just had to tell you that story. That's really great. I had no idea. Um, But, yeah, all the boobs in this movie are incredible. They're so incredible. We love boobs. We love boobs in this hammer. Film. We love boobs over here. And <laughs> they her her bosom like touches this cross around his neck and she recoils uh and he decapitates her. And the decapitation sound effect was achieved by cutting through a cabbage, apparently. Yes, I have heard that. That's amazing. And then now we get the our classic credits, right? And we're we're yeah. now at this party. Everyone is dancing very gaily. This is where General Spielsdorf's shindig, who's played by Peter Cushing. And we meet the these two young girls who are our future victims. It's kind of obvious if you haven't seen the movie, the way they set it up. Uh, <laughs> Laura and Emma. And Laura is General Sp- Spielsdorf's niece. And now we finally get to meet this mysterious dark-haired woman, a countess, which I feel like is kind mm-hmm. of a nod to Countess Bathory. And she arrives with her daughter, Marcela, which, you know, is Carmilla rearranged. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we get... We love the anagram moment. I love also- that. Yeah. And it's very and common. true to the novel. Yes, true to the novel, the novel. and also ha- is done in Blood and Roses as well. Um, 
played by Ingrid Pitt, who, of course, is gorgeous. She wears this fabulous red gown with this matching tiara. Uh, a lot of female vampires in film often wear red to sort of show you that they're vampires and they have this lust for blood. She's the only one who wears red. And she just looks incredible. Like, there's – it's just iconic. And Yeah, the red look is so incredibly iconic. And I love this – I just love this first entrance when she comes in with the Countess to the Countess – um, is passing her off as her daughter, but she pauses and really awkwardly delivers that line, like making it very clear. Like, might I introduce to you uh, my daughter? Like they didn't and talk about this before. <laughs> so, it's so funny too, because like, I know that like one of the criticisms of this film was that like people felt like Ingrid Pitt was the wrong choice for Carmilla because she didn't like look young. And um, it's actually why I love it so much. Me too. I love that she she has like kind of like dyke crone energy. Yes. She doesn't look young. She does not look youthful. And like, she's so fucking hot. And like, I really just feel like that's an energy that I aspire to as someone who has never exactly been like a fresh faced. Totally. (laughs) I mean, she's the brand. She's mommy. Like she is so mommy. I mean, yeah, the mommy stuff is like real heavy in this film for sure. I mean, and I love that she looks older and the young, innocent victims look young and innocent. Like it very much works for me. And her makeup. I love that too. Her makeup too. But like this moment makes me laugh so hard because like the countess like literally looks younger than her. She does. This is my daughter. And she's not. The actress, I can wait, what did, I cannot remember the actress's name, but she's not like younger in terms of being an actress. But they look the same age or of similar ages. So when she introduces her as her daughter, it just makes it all the more like kind of mysterious and implausible and, and perverse. Love, like, and perverse and like a major theme of Carmilla is that the men are always really clueless and never have any idea what's going on so the fact that she's just like this is my daughter and General Spielsdorf is like totally yes he's like okay and all all of the men are like immediately going gaga for Marcilla because she doesn't look like any of the other women there and she dances with one of the young men but her eyes are like glued to Laura General Spielsdorf's niece and Laura this is my favorite I love this because this is Laura is dancing with her like quote-unquote boyfriend her beau whatever uh and she says that Marcilla keeps staring at him and she's like oh she's trying to take you away from me I do think she'd love to take you away from yeah right and Carl is like uh and she's staring at you and this is such a common femdike experience yeah just i i love that yeah go ahead no no i love that moment so much like strong case for carl as bisexual because carl is the only one who knows what's going on strong case yeah he clocks it (laughs) he clocks it and like i cry laughing every single time at the scene because it's instantaneous he takes one look at her and he goes oh she's looking at you like 
that's it. And he's just like sees it so clearly. Nobody else sees it, at least at first. And then I love that like all of a sudden we get like sinister music. Like as soon as he says, she's looking at you, it's like chimes, chimes. <laughs> yes. And <laughs> she's checking her out so hardcore, which is, yeah, a very common femme dyke moment of like no I'm not looking at your boyfriend I'm <laughs> looking at you yeah <laughs> which I love when these films sort of like unintentionally capture very real queer experiences <laughs> exactly there are so many of those delicious moments in this film that feel 100% like inside jokes like yes the in jokes and that's why it's so fascinating to like hear Roy Ward Baker like insist that he thought nothing gay about Carmilla the novel and that he wasn't making a gay film because these moments feel so true and delicious and like campy and just it's so hard to believe that this wasn't made by us I know (laughs) it just makes me feel like they're just saying that like because it's so it's just so obvious like this is how many times has that happened to all of us growing up as femmes, like just being completely invisible, uh, except to people who know, who just know. <laughs> yeah. And it's so great. It's so great. And Carl like can also sort of clock her because he sees in her what he sees in him, which is like a look of lust, like looking at somebody with mm-hmm. desire. Uh, and yeah, I just love that subtle it's such a short moment but it's it's one of the best in the film uh and we this mysterious man arrives right this pale man who's like so obviously a fucking vampire in a <laughs> this that part is so cape. hilarious like yeah he just walks right into this party which is so lush i mean this scene is definitely one of those moments where you are so amazed at like the hammer aesthetic and how they pulled off these incredible um, these incredible scenes and this production value on usually pretty small budgets because it's so beautiful, this whole ball scene. And this guy just walks in wearing like what looks like a Party City Dracula Halloween <laughs> costume. Like yeah. he could not be more obviously a vampire. I know. And nobody seems to notice him. Yeah, no one, and no one notices him except the Countess who obviously knows him and she he whispers something to her and then she tells the general that a dear friend of her is dying and asks if her daughter Marcilla can stay with him. And he says it would be his pleasure. The other thing about this that's a little weird is like General Spielsdorf seems to know the Countess. But like, how would that be? It's Yeah, it's very weird, right? I mean, because everything is so mysterious in the novella, like, they encounter these individuals just by like chance on on the road but here they seem to be established as neighbors seems like they've just take they've just moved in they've just okay. taken up residence because everyone's like everyone's like ooh like we must learn to love thy neighbor and it says that makes sense down the road but but it doesn't really make sense because if they've purchased a property they're certainly not going to stay there so <laughs> yeah it's a little strange it's it's strange but we, you know we suspend disbelief for <laughs> 
<laughs> for this movie. So the, he says it would be his pleasure, right? So Marcilla and her heaving bosom <laughs> walk out into the night, and that mysterious vampire man is about to ride away on his horse, and they make eye contact, and he smiles knowingly at her and bears his fangs, right? So if you didn't know before that these were all vampires – now you know. Now you know. <laughs> now you know. I'm so curious, like, what your take is on the mysterious the mysterious vampire dude. Like, why is he there? What is his purpose? I feel like I um, have so ignored him in my many viewings of this film. Because nothing I know is, so many, yeah. like I know so many, like, feminist critics. I mean, the kind of feminist critic that already hates this film. Right. right. Like, see him as a symbol of, like... The fact that like this is we've taken this radical novel and we've inserted like the vampire patriarch who's really the voyeur and who's really pulling all the strings and controlling Marcella's desires. But I just like am not I'm not I'm not here for that reading. I could see that. Like I could see that as one of the readings, but I read it more as he's in service to these women like he's just kind of there to like enact his role he doesn't talk like i see him as just there to facilitate their feeding (laughs) which yeah i i totally agree with that like i think it's so interesting because i've read these readings that are just like oh he's there commanding her and i'm like commanding where he does not have a voice i don't see it that way at all i see it as like he's a helper he's sort of a lower rung in their hierarchy like i said but i could told i could see the other reading as well i could could make a case for that as well but i don't know i prefer to see it as more of just he's a helper like he's sort of not a renfield because he is a vampire but like a, a servant you know and the countess and uh marcella are you know, in charge. I see it more that way. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah, I, we're, we're going to just go with that. We're, we're yeah. a lot of this movie is just like me projecting what I want onto it. Yeah, <laughs> which I'm fine with. I mean, that's what that's what I do. I'm like, I was like reading that, and I was like, oh, I didn't even think about that guy. Like, he's not. Who cares? <laughs> well, this like, is. <laughs> Ingrid Pitt is on the screen. Like, I'm not looking at this dude in the bad Party City vampire costume. Like, who invited him? Yeah, totally. I don't care really about any of the men in this movie. Like, Carl is sort of interesting, but the rest of the men, like, not – I really – it's just not the point. Like, who watches this for that? And I think the other part about – like, a lot of the, the, the criticism of lesbian vampire films – uh, comes from like second wave critiques, film yeah. theory, like or um, women who aren't gay, frankly, and don't yeah. see the lesbian, the inherent lesbian gaze in these films, mm-hmm. and kind of they read it a different way than we do because when we watch it, we're seeing our desires and our our sexuality and our uh, eroticism played out. And I think some critics watch this and some women who aren't of that experience watch these films and they can't see that because they're seeing 
the the men who made it and like their stamp on it more so. Whereas like when I watch it, I am sort of relating to it because at least when these men have their gaze on it, they have a more similar gaze to mine because they're seeing it with desire and eroticism. Like as much as I would ever hate to relate to a a man, it's there is right there's but there's more of that there because we also desire these women just like they do so it's totally yeah i i feel the same way also it's like i feel like these films offer a representation of high femininity that is gay you know totally is kind of difficult to find um and to see that is really exciting like it is really exciting. And like you were saying, Ingrid Pitts, like she looks older. She's got this husky voice. And it's men attempting to show you that this is like a sexually inverted person, like this is an other, but unintentionally making it very gay. Like yeah. it's their way of showing you that she's different from the other women, but in doing so, they create a dyke. They do. Yeah. And they like get it really right. Yeah. And she is super right. Like what she embodies obviously um speaks to us so clearly and has to so many um queer women who watch this film. Like. Yeah, especially femmes, because you there is a lot of representation of femme lesbianism in film that is very much from a male gaze perspective and like pretty much no representations of butch women in film i'm totally. i mean they um there was also the film the killing of sister george which came out in 1968 which um was also a British film, and that is about a butch lesbian. Uh, and it's very good if you can get a hold of it, if anybody could watch it, like definitely yeah, recommend yeah. it. But it's there is there's lots of representations of femininity, but not a lot of representations of feminists. So I think when we as fem dykes watch these things, we're sort of like oh, I see that in myself. Like, it's different than just representing femininity. Like, femme is different than femininity. And, you know, I see Ingrid Pitt in this as a femme dyke, Mm -hmm. like, very much so. And all of those coded things, like, staring at the woman across the room and, you know, being ignored and and doing that. Um, And, like, sort of being able to move invisibly through straight society, but, like, not quite. Not quite, right? Yeah. Only at the beginning. Right. Like, after that initial moment, I mean, I, I love, I mean, we'll get to it probably when we talk about the later scenes, but you see that like initial attraction that the men feel fade away pretty quickly the longer they spend around her. And I mean, like it's skipping ahead slightly, but just like that moment where Carl is talking to General Spielsdorf and they're like, she's become so devoted. Oh um, my God. And, it's And yeah. General Spielsdorf, like Peter Cushing has this just dead, like leaden face. And he's like, Nevertheless, I shall be glad when the countess comes back for her. Yes, it's so and good. He's like so over her, and he, but he doesn't say anything. Like he, you can tell he can't like explain why, but 
he's become extremely uncomfortable around her. And it, of course, it's because she's a vampire, but it's also because she's a dyke. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the other thing is like being a femme dyke is when you meet men, they always, they're like, oh, this lipstick lesbian, like that's so sexy. And then they realize you're just a man-hating dyke. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I don't know. To me, there's something that's like really relatable about like embodying this high femininity, but like in a way that that makes men feel like extremely uncomfortable. And they're like, Oh, this isn't for me. And I, I feel it. And like, this energy feels really bad to me. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. And like, I just feel like that is so palpable in this film. And it's another reason why I love it so much. Yes, it's it's so good. This next scene, I also love when Marcilla and Laura are in the garden having a chat. So Marcilla can go out in the sunlight, um, notably, and she's in this beautiful blue dress. And she says she feels her and Laura will be such good friends. And she puts this flower crown on her and she tells her she's beautiful and she strokes her back. And it's so sexy. Like, how did they think this isn't gay? Yeah. I mean, their faces are so close. She like pulls Laura's face. So and she's like stroking her hair, which again, they're on a date. They're on a date. And it's. This moment too, like I know that you said that you feel like this film actually is really different from the novel and and I feel like it is too, but there are moments that feel so true and this is one of them because you can feel Laura like be so kind of confused. Like she's like, I feel the intensity of this and I don't know how to process it. And so she says something like, oh, you're just teasing me just like Carl does. And it's this moment where she compares that feeling to her only other experience of that feeling, which is with her fiance, Bo, whatever, Carl. And that happens in the novella as well. Like Laura's trying to process the intensity of the emotion between the two of them. And she's like, I don't know, like, there's just something so strange. Like, could Carmilla actually be a boy who's a suitor who has like snuck in and masquerade? Like, and I which is an amazing moment in a super queer like moment. In That's the novel. so queer. Yeah. But it like speaks to, I mean, there are so many things you can do with that, right? Like many, many things. But one of them is like the sense of like not being able to process um, an attraction that you've never been given a name for. Right. And so like trying to process it through the only framework you have. And so I actually thought that's like a really genius moment of the, of the screenplay where she's kind of like, is this like Carl? Is this like that? Because it feels like that. <laughs> right. No, that's a really good point. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's when Marcela is like, no, you're beautiful. Like, I'm not teasing you. I'm into you. <laughs> that's also that very, like, kind of femme for femme moment that we always joke about that of, yeah. like, you know, trying to, you know, oh, my God, I love your makeup. <laughs> like, no, I love your makeup. Like, I'm, girl, I'm flirting with you. <laughs> Like yeah, yeah. it's we're just gonna be such good friends. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That night Marcilla stares out the window and she sees the vampire man again and um she knows, you know, now is the time. Uh Laura starts to have these bad dreams. She's tossing and turning. All of the bad dream sequences are shot in black and white, which is interesting. Um, and she has this nightmare about a cat like creature attacking her in her bed which is true to the novel and I love that it's a cat specifically I feel like a lot of vampires it's a wolf or a bat like it's I I rarely hear about it being a cat 
Um, yeah. And that's just, I mean, I feel like the symbolism there is pretty obvious. <laughs> Like, it's yeah, pussy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, she it, literally is being choked by a cat. Like, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, I'm being smothered by this cat. Exactly. Um, like, what could that I mean? It, I love that it's the cat, too, because it very few adaptations of Carmilla. Like, I'm actually not a, you probably know of others, but I can't actually think of another adaptation of Carmilla that includes the cat, at least not this prominently. And um, you know, that was present in the novella. And that was, like you said, 26 years before Dracula. And, and so like the cat really like predates the prominence of like the bat imagery. Yeah. Never- and the wolf imagery, because like Dracula, I think in the original novel also changes into kind of a wolf beast kind of creature um, yeah. to feed on Lucy. And yeah, the cat, I can't think of anything except for the most recent Carmilla, which is the most true yeah. adaptation. Um, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. But yeah, the cat, it's not a very common vampire creature. Like, it's just not what we usually associate with them. But I love that the the lesbian vampire is the cat. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I have to tell you that I do, in fact, have a black cat named Carmilla. Oh, my God. Of course you do. <laughs> which is a black cat. It's a black cat in the novel. And they make it a gray cat here. Which they do. Strange. Except maybe I'm like, did you only have access? To, I feel like, like, like somebody cat? had a gray cat. <laughs> <laughs> Stuff. Yeah. Yeah, but that's that's so I of course you do. <laughs> I love the dream sequences. Like I love the shadows. I love I um I love the way that we we see the eyes and the eyes turn into Carmilla's eyes and I love the I don't know how they achieve the effect or anything behind the making of it, but yeah, the dream sequences, sequences. are very um they're very interesting. They're very like kind of experimental and mm-hmm. um, just out of place in this otherwise very uh, colorful film. Yeah, it makes me think of Blood and Roses too, because we have, of course have like really amazing dream sequences in that film, Ugh, like the super yes. surrealist. Like, biz- I mean, those scenes are just unbelievable, and they're obviously not that similar. But I do love that both of those films like pay so much attention to the dream as an important um, part of like the vampire seduction. Yes. And like the dream thing is just really, it's appealing to me. And um, I love that they, they really like mark off this moment by, by the black and white and like the way that they shoot it. Although there was a, a review, I think it was like the, the monthly film bulletin really criticized them for how bad the cat fur looks. Um, I didn't even notice. There are moments that you see like cat fur kind of covering Laura's face or like attacking her and it does not look really like a real cat. It just looks like bad faux fur fabric. And so this review said that um, it's nice that they did the whole cat thing. That was unique. (laughs) But it happens to look a lot more like a moth-eaten rug. (laughs) You know, they didn't have a lot of money. Exactly. I still am happy with it, but I just find that a hilarious read. That is really funny. So Laura wakes up screaming and her father and uh, nursemaid come and not her father, her her uncle and mm-hmm. nursemaid come and comfort her and then they go check on Marcilla who does not answer because she's not in there <laughs> we see this shot of her outside at night staring up at Laura's window um, you know 
come on like (laughs) and some time passes uh laura is sick and the general is bereft he doesn't know how to help her she has these nightmares all the time she's fatigued some shitty doctor says that she's anemic uh it's very much speaks to this way of women not being believed i feel like of you know oh it's she's anemic she just needs to eat more red meat and (sighs) yeah like she'll be fine and even the blood in her right even the general is like she's legitimately sick (laughs) and this doctor is just like so inept but it's very much speaks to what you were saying of the men are just completely inept in this film like they're they're completely inept yeah, they have no idea what to do. Marcilla watches the doctor leave, smiling. She <laughs> tends to Laura in her bed. Uh, Laura thanks her for taking care of her because and she doesn't know what she'll do when Marcilla leaves, even though she she doesn't know Marcilla is the one inf- inflicting all of this on her, which I felt like, and I write about this, I don't know if you got a chance to read the essay that I wrote, recently for cultured magazine but i wrote about codependency and in lesbian relationships and vampire films and lesbian vampire films and this is very prominent example of trauma bonding right which is like somebody inflicting pain on you and then soothing it so that you associate mm-hmm. them with the source of the pain but also of the soothing of the pain which is a very common thing in abusive codependent relationships and i just found this something that is unintentionally quite profound in this film of you know somebody who was like feeding off of you but also the source of your comfort which can be very common in gay relationships when you are kind of you feel like you're clinging to this abusive person because you're also scared of being without someone else in this world, which is so homophobic. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I can see that. These are, yeah, this film is a really excellent sort of case, case study for that exact argument. And like that, the kind of vulnerability from being, of being afraid to leave that person particularly Again, it's like your first relationship, which of course we're seeing yes. these, young, these young innocents be seduced by this sort of worldly uh, feeling older lesbian. Yeah, like for sure. Yeah. And it's Carmilla or Marcilla, Mercala, whatever, you know, she also goes from relationship to relationship, like never quite getting what she wants out of it. Um mm-hmm. And Marcilla kisses her softly on the lips and then on the neck, embracing her. And it's very sensual. (laughs) And Carl comes to call on Laura, but her father says she won't see anyone but Marcilla. And this is that moment you were saying where uh, the general is like disturbed by Marcilla and Laura's relationship, but does not know why he's disturbed by it. He just knows something is off. Uh, Laura continues to have nightmares that plague her. She gets sicker and sicker. She wastes away in bed dying, but begs for Marcilla. Uh, So she is addicted to her. (laughs) The nurse goes to fetch Marcilla, but she's not in her room. 
And this is a very, I mean, in some ways, like it's this has been read, like we were saying, by feminist scholars as a very parasitic representation of lesbianism. Um, it's that's definitely, you know, it's got that predatory lesbian trope going on, right? Of like the the older woman who is corrupting the younger woman and making her feel all kinds of ways she wouldn't naturally feel. So that's definitely there, right? But it's also – I'm more interested in this as a representation of being addicted to that feeling for the first time of, you know, being with this beautiful older woman. (laughs) Um, Marcilla appears in Laura's room and says she went to the chapel to pray for Laura, which is, of course, very funny because she can't go into a chapel. (laughs) And – she her delivery into is so epic. What did you just say? Sorry, I, her delivery of that line is. So oh yeah, epic. she's she, like. She, I was she in the chapel. For- yeah. <laughs> no one believes her, <laughs> and <laughs> she looks at Laura and just kind of matter of factly says she's dead. The doctor arrives to check on Laura, bearing her breast, right? And he sees these two puncture marks on her breast. And Marcella has mysteriously disappeared. And this is a great moment where the general calls her name and it echoes and it kind of fades into – we pan to see the gravestone that reads Mirkala Karnstein, 1522-1546. to yeah, I love that. Going is so amazing. Um, those shots are so, so beautiful. We get more of the fog again. We see it at the beginning. Yes, and we learn that Marcella is actually Mirkala, and she died in 1546. So she's been dead for quite some time. <laughs> and she died at 24. Yes, yeah. And Carl tells the Mortons. So that's Emma from the beginning, right? Laura's friend and her father of Laura's death. And he says the general went to go stay with his friend, Baron von Hartog, who's the guy from the beginning. And Emma sobs to her governess, Madame Perrineau, who is also very hot. Wow. Can we have a moment for Madame? Yeah, because she is very important. <laughs> very important. I love her character. Another mommy figure. Like, I love her in um, Carmilla's relationship that they're going to have. Yeah, she's just this ultimate lesbian governess figure. And um, there's this moment in Nina Auerbach's book, which like Nina Auerbach obviously like hates this film and like whatever. And the only thing that I like about her reading of this film is that she calls Madame Peridot's character sinister because intellectual. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's the and other part like, of it. Yeah. That is the moment that like, that is the only part of her reading of this film that I like. Because it's so spot on. It just really speaks to the fact that, like, she's also really coded as a dyke from the moment that you see her. And, like, it has to do with her sort of status as, like, single working woman installed in this in this family structure that she's not a part of. Yes. And, of course, sinister, suspect, not quite feminine in an appropriate way because she's an intellectual. Yes, exactly. Which 
I mean, you gotta love a spinster governess. Like, come on. That's, I mean, as somebody who, like, would have been that if (laughs) if I were alive. Yeah. Like, I, you know, I see you, girl. (laughs) We, We also get this scene of this terrified, buxom peasant girl, and she's carrying a basket through the woods, very Red Riding Hood style, and she hears these noises and she runs away and we're, we get this like POV shot of, you know, where the thing's stalking her and we see what looks to be Marcilla feeding on her. And I also thought this was a, an interesting – because this is also happens in the novella, right, of, you know, Carmilla kind of going around and killing peasant girls. There's these yeah. class differences in, the, in her mm-hmm. feeding rituals, right? Like she – the peasant girls, she just kind of eats right away. And these rich girls, she feeds on them over time. It's so intense. I do love that the film brings that out because it's in, like it's so prominent in the novel. It's like, you know, she just like treats the, the village girls as really disposable, but she savors the aristocratic women. And it's like she's dating them. She's sort of like, it's, I think we're supposed to have the sense that like she must know that she's killing her victims, but she seems really sad about it. She does. On some level. Even with some of I, I mean, it depends on how you interpret the funeral scene later, but like even with some of the the not aristocratic or those who are from a lower class position. But yeah, she just sort of devours them um in this way that's that's very fast. And these are just like her one night stands. They're her one night stands, yeah. And like the older the the aristocratic girls, she yeah, she's like courting them. It's a ritual and that has to be seen through to the end. Um Mr. Morton comes upon this carriage accident in the woods. And this is a great scene. The unharmed passengers emerge and it is the Countess and Marcilla now saying that she is the Countess's niece and going by the name Carmilla. So the faked carriage accident, right? This is how, how the book actually begins. That's how yeah. Carmilla comes into uh, Emma's life in the book or Laura's life in the book. And Emma and her father say Carmilla is too shocked to continue the journey, and they insist that she stay with them. Yeah. Emma is very excited at the idea. Um, The governess, Madame Perrineau, gives this German lesson in this one scene, and it's very hot. She's speaking German. Oh, it's... (laughs) That scene... I feel like that scene is like where things like really just like take a wild turn because that seems really hot and then it leads into like what is arguably the best scene. But yeah, when they're both trying to teach her how to say the German word for eyebrow, she's just like so doe-eyed. And so femme. Eyebrow. Ingrid Pitt just being like, you have to say it right. You have to say it right. And she's like, German is so difficult. Oh, my God. It's so hot. It could easily devolve into full pornography, this scene. (laughs) And I mean, also that Madame Perrineau and... The and Carmilla are sort of linked together in this scene, right? Is like being smart, uh, being you know worldly, whereas Emma is just innocent. Uh, Emma walks in on Carmilla in the bath. <laughs> 
and we get to see Ingrid Pitt's breasts, right? <laughs> and Emma, oh, yeah. right? Emma tries on Carmilla's dress, which is more sophisticated. And Carmilla encourages her to take off all her underwear because a bodice ruins the shape. <laughs> Uh-huh. And Carmilla watches Emma in the mirror. Uh, she watches her undress. Uh, how could you think that this was not gay? I don't. It's not computing. <laughs> the scene is so amazing. Like the bathtub is so beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's this bathtub like in the middle of the room that has this beautiful curved shape to it. There's like this floral wallpaper. Everything is so lush and beautiful. She stands up soaking wet from the bath. Her skin is glistening. Ingrid Pitt, by the way, loves doing this nude scene. She did. She's like, like, hey. She's like, she was like, I'm very, very proud of my body. Like, why not? Which I just love. I love that too. Yeah, because she, these films were accused of being exploitative or, you know, the women, the actresses being taken advantage of. And she was asked about that in an interview. And she was like, I did not feel that way at all. Like, I loved, yeah. I love seeing this scene. Like, I look great. <laughs> Yeah, and like Madeline Smith too, like she's talked about how she had a lot of apprehension about the nude scene, but she definitely didn't feel like, I don't think that she felt coerced or exploited. Like what I've read is like she really, she loved Roy Ward Baker, like thought that he was like so amazing and like very like fatherly and like just did not feel like he was being like lecherous with her. So she felt like it was very like professional and she said Ingrid Pitt really, Ingrid Pitt's confidence really inspired her. Wow, it doesn't sound gay at all, Madeline. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't sound like she was really admiring Ingrid Pitt's confidence. Right, exactly. (laughs) So Carmilla and Emma wrestle playfully, and Carmilla... They topless wrestle! Yeah, they topless wrestle, and Carmilla pins her to the bed and stares deeply into her eyes, and... She dresses Emma for dinner in this bold dress that isn't as innocent as what she normally wears. And the father and Madame Perrault are very skeptical. And Carmilla wears her red dress again, which I feel like the red dress is also part of the ritual. Mm-hmm. Like it's it has to be worn at a certain time. And there's a very is very ritualized her killings and like they all happen in the same trajectory. And it's kind of like uh she's living out something over and over again. It's very kind of, you know, like the like a ghost, which, you know, she is the dead. So she must live this cycle out over and over again i love that and actually like i think that's true you probably can track the cycle through her outfits which is pretty amazing i'm so obsessed with everything that she wears in this film but i don't know that i really noted the progression i know she wears like a really like beautiful iconic black sheer slip when laura dies and i think she starts wearing it again yes emma starts like taking a turn for the worse but this moment where they come down after their like naked wrestling, where they come down to dinner is like one of those like laugh out loud moments where you're like, how is this not like a community in joke? Because they come out of the room having just like topless wrestled with Ingrid Pitt, like pinning her romantic mu- music swells right when that happens. And you get this like close up of Ingrid Pitt, like looking very like kind of predatory. Yes. And sultry. And then they just like they walk down with like these I don't know like she's got like she is smiling and she's just like 
she's like oh yeah we just did that and like madeline smith is kind of like giving these furtive little like yes her innocence is gone she's kind of like ooh, and it's like the sense of like i don't know like coming down to dinner after being like up in your room with like your first girlfriend like coming down to your parents or something like it has that feel it definitely does of like oh wow i was just like up in my room and now we have to come back down like she her face is hilarious like madeline smith's expressions there just send me <laughs> they're so good and ingrid pitts too she's very like what now too she's like, yeah i did that mr morton and madame perino she's like what are you gonna do about it <laughs> yeah and you have like this slight sense that madame perino is a little bit like threatened having been you know the big dyke in the household that was spending a lot of time with innocent young emma yes she's a little threatened and she's also more tuned in than anybody else because of that. So yeah. uh, Carmilla, you know, she drinks red wine at dinner, but is disgusted by it because it's this poor substitute for blood, of course. And that night, Emma suffers from the same dreams that Laura did. Uh, the dreams are again in black and white. Madame Perrineau comes to comfort her, but it, she insists it was just a nightmare. Emma gets sicker, right? So the same thing is happening. And Carmilla tells Mr. Morton, I will take care of her. Right. And he's very skeptical of that. And yeah. we also see that she never eats or drinks. So yeah. Mr. Morton asks Carl to come check on Emma while he's on a business trip in Vienna. And Madame Perrineau tells Emma to not get carried away with her imagination, right? You know, she's kind of like gaslighting her because something is obviously happening to her. And, you know, people are just dismissing her again, just like they did with Laura. That night, I love this scene. Carmilla becomes insanely jealous because Emma speaks of wanting a handsome man like Carl to come and marry her and take her away. And they have this basically a lover's quarrel. They do. It's a lover's quarrel. It's their first fight and they do a lot of processing. They they do. You know, Emma says, you're so sensitive. You're so sensitive. And Carmilla is like, I just want you to love me forever. Like all your life only love me it's this very crazy codependent fight uh and she I love too that her this, love. this this fight i love too that this fight starts because uh carmilla is reading aloud to her she's reading this book and all we get is the final sentence that she read and it's like and he showered her with manly kisses and then she closes the book and goes this is a silly book oh my god me <laughs> like, Carmilla is just like uh i'm not into this like heterosexual romance plot at all and and emma's just like but don't you wish you could meet a handsome young man and she goes no yeah she just straight up goes she says no <laughs> so it's so good yeah and i love how she's just like ugh. anyway back to us she <laughs> Back to us. <laughs> and she says, you know, Emma says, Carmilla tells Emma she loves her. She doesn't want anyone taking her away from her. And um, Emma says, but it wouldn't be the same thing. It's different. And I was like, oh, my gay heart. Like, you can see Carmilla the hurt on her face when Emma says that. Like, she's just crushed. And 
she kisses Emma goodnight, and then she also kisses Madame Perrineau goodnight. Oh, that moment. That moment, too. Because, I mean, Madame Perrineau, like, interrupts when they're having this very intense, like, lover's quarrel, but they've just sort of made up. And Madame Perrineau interrupts, and all of a sudden, Carmilla's just like, yep, everything's fine in here. Like, we weren't having, like, a really intense lesbian processing session. Right. Like... <laughs> <laughs> over my like smothering um demands for affection and she just like turns on the charm with madame perdo and they and says like oh you're so kind and kisses her and madame perdo's face she's into she, it she's so into it she is like blown away yeah i mean she's been waiting for this all her life like she's <laughs> that is exactly what her expression says to me and i love that there's no like dream seduction or like sense of no she's just power. gay <laughs> She's just gay. Yeah. She's literally just gay. And she's like, holy shit, this like hot woman has moved into my house where like I've had no one to be with. And she just kissed me. And I think she gave me the vibe. Yeah. She gave me the look. Yeah. They, they, they clock each other. And which I love. Carmilla eats another peasant that night. And <laughs> in the garden the next morning, this is also an interesting scene because Ingrid Pitt's acting is very good in this scene. She's agitated by this funeral procession for the peasant that she killed and she gets very upset and she, you know emma emma says isn't it so sad and she says you must die everybody must die and emma you know kind of says like all of these young women have been dying in nearby villages and she comforts carmilla and you know she says oh she says to carmilla like i should have i shouldn't have said that like you know it, i i didn't realize how upset you would get it's all it's very gay <laughs> like she yeah you know, I, what do you make of that? What do you make of Carmilla getting so upset? You know, she also begs Emma to hold her. She's usually the one who's being, you know, the girls are begging to be held mm -hmm. by her. So it's a very different vibe for her in this scene. Yeah, I love this scene. Um, it's interesting. I don't know what to make of it. I think two things are going on and there's there's a funeral scene in the book as well where she sort of loses it when a funeral procession goes by so I think on the one hand they took this from from the source material but I think that it's it's both the fact that I think the religious music is supposed to be painful to her like as a vampire and it's weird that like you know she can be in the light but in the scene she also seems to be experiencing sensitivity to the sun at the beginning of the scene she's like Emma's like, well, come sit in the light. And she's like, it's too bright for me. It hurts right. my eyes, right? So we're seeing like multiple vulnerabilities for her here. So I think part of it is the religious music is causing her some kind of like physical pain. But I also do read it as a sense of remorse. Like I think, of course, we're supposed to believe that that this is one of her victims, right? Um, who's who's being taken away. And I think that I do read it as remorse for her actions. Um we do have the sense of her, I think, as like a tragic figure. Like she knows all of her victims are going to die, but she seems to believe, at least the aristocratic ones, that like each one is going to be different. Like yeah, this, this is going to be the one. This one will be different. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, I think she's, I think she's sad. I think she's um, overcome with guilt. Yes, and it's also kind of plays into that idea of the vampire as a tortured figure, as somebody who doesn't delight in killing it's you know it's a necessity um mm -hmm. but it's 
it's a torturous thing. It's a curse, right? The, the, you know, immortality of, you know, oh, you get the gift of immortality, but you have to feed on people forever and you're never really, you never really have a real connection, you know? It's, uh, it's a being damned. Yeah, and I think that, that that's one reason why Ingrid Pitt is so amazing in this scene because that was something that she really understood about the character. Like, she didn't think it was a gay thing, but she did think it was, like, a tortured, tragic thing. She saw the Carmilla character that she was playing as someone who just is so desperate for closeness and intimacy and touch, uh, which she somehow didn't think of as gay, but okay. Um, but that, you know, she was doomed to never be able to have those things because she would destroy each person that she became close to. And I think, you know, that is something that Ingrid Pitt understood about the character very well. Definitely. You see it here. Definitely. So Carmilla. Oh, wait, what? Sorry. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I just want to say, I just want to say one quick thing about the scene is uh, why is Ingrid Pitt's hair so bad in the scene? Oh my why God, I even noticed. It's pulled back in a ponytail inexplicably, like a nape of the neck ponytail, like she's just headed to the gym. Oh, yeah. And when you see it shot from the back, it is like a literal rubber band. <laughs> um, so I just need to express my outrage because it's such a great scene. And then every single time I'm like, this hair, this hairstyling is femphobic. Like, it's, why yeah, I know. I see that. That's really funny. I mean, yeah, her hair is so good in every other scene of the movie. Like her hair is just like lustrous in this film. But yeah, that's really funny. It's like they were like, oh, and it's just- we don't know. <laughs> Put it in a ponytail. I'm like- I tried to make a theory for it because her hair is actually, like you noted about the outfits, her hair is especially lustrous after her victims die. Ah. Like in that scene, in that scene where Laura dies, her hair is like the most beautiful it's been in the whole film. It's like curled and like really big. And well, I that makes like sense because she later. is weak in the sunlight in this scene, you know, so she's, you know, she needs to eat, to eat. It's almost also like as if the peasant women's blood doesn't really do much for her either. Like she needs rich blood. <laughs> like the, they're just snacks. <laughs> The girl has expensive taste. She does, yeah. Uh, you know, respect. <laughs> that night, um, Carmilla reads to Emma, and she mysteriously leaves as if called by the moon itself. And Emma also tells her that she never gets tired at night. She starts – she's feeling excited at night, She and then during the day, she feels awful. Carmilla also asks her if she dreams and she seems to almost get off on Emma's pain here. Uh, she, you know, is extracting details from of from her of this dream. I also love that Emma says she's never she hasn't told anyone the specifics of her dream, but she tells Carmilla now that in her dream, there's a cat that sits at the foot of the bed and stares at her. And then the cat lies across her. And then it turns into Carmilla. And all of a sudden, she is so happy to see her. And then Carmilla embraces her and then kisses her. And suddenly everything is okay. But even as Carmilla holds her close, she feels pain, like sharp needles, and feels that the life is running out of her. What do you make of this dream? Oh, I just love this moment. Um, I think you already highlighted some moments where it feels very confessional. It's like I'm telling you this thing that I've never told anyone else, and of course, 
the contents of the dream seem to admit her erotic attraction to Carmilla. Um, and I think, yeah, there's just so much that's coded there and the sense of like feeling excited and restless at night. Um, she's I already mean, become. I definitely yeah. do. I mean, it's what, right. It's so relatable. Like, oh, I feel restless and excited at night. And then I feel so wretched during the day. Like, same sister. Like, yeah. yeah. Same. <laughs> um, but like, yeah, we, we here we have her like really naming explicitly like the experience of Carmilla's seduction, which we don't get quite from Laura. And it's something that I think the film gets really right. Like, that you know Carmilla appears and all of a sudden these girls are just like writhing in pain and ecstasy in their beds <laughs> like it's like a masturbation um, metaphor also oh definitely for sure it's uh Madeline Smith said that she didn't understand when she was filming these dream scenes that that they were supposed to be masturbation or like orgasmic right scenes. I know the w- um, Laura and Emma like, both play it like it's incredibly painful, but in the book, I imagine it is more like an orgasmic scream when they wake up as opposed to a painful scream. Yeah. Yeah. I think you can see it as both in the film too. Like it's, it's pain and pleasure, right? Which is like true of vampire mythology. And it's, it's that sense of like attraction and revulsion simultaneously. Like I see, I see Laura's dream sounds as like, pretty orgasmic although it's almost like it's so overwhelming she's like it's like too much right like at one point laura says oh not again (laughs) (laughs) right another thing i love about this moment and um this is just awful but emma says that she can feel like part of the dream is that she can feel the fur in her mouth (laughs) i mean come on (laughs) you had to point it out you mean like it's really hitting you over the head with it there Carmilla also kisses Emma and slowly undresses her, laying her down and kissing her all over. And Emma is like in a trance. You know, she's kind of in ecstasy. That night in her sleep, Emma screams again and Madame Perrineau and Carmilla come to comfort her and tuck her in. And I love this. Madame sees the bite marks on Emma and Carmilla insists that it was this sharp brooch that made these marks. She says, see, I have it here too. And then she pins the brooch to Madame and Madame is immediately hypnotized by Carmilla and Carmilla seduces the governess. She beckons her into her room, turns off the light undresses her we see this gorgeous like she undresses herself we see this gorgeous silhouette of ingrid pitt's naked body and then madame goes to her and we assume that they have sex (laughs) like yeah i love it so much it's very good it's so good and it's almost like madame is hypnotized by her like she's under her control in a vampiric way but she's also always wanted this like it's she can't she can't control herself and she doesn't want to like she goes so completely to Carmilla there's no seduction there's no dream seduction like you said it's you know just it's and it's more of like also an adult kind of relationship whereas um Carmilla and her victims are more kind of like a mommy girl thing like an older woman younger woman thing and in this one it's kind of like no we know what's up 
girl. We've been eyeing each other. Like, and it's straight up no pretense, no girlish pretense of like, we're kissing, we're in bed and we're snuggling, we're having a sleepover. It's like, no, we're having sex, adult sex. Yeah, she <laughs> she literally just like tells Madame Paradise, she beckons her into the room and just like strips and silhouette and it's just like, you know, she just says turn off the light or whatever. It's yeah. Just- it's very direct. It's, it's very extremely hot. hot and direct, yeah. So Carl comes to call the next day, and Madame Perrineau is no longer herself. She turns Carl away. She's been she's been <sighs> turned. You know, Carmilla has got that. She's got that vampire pussy. <laughs> like, <laughs> Madame Perrineau. I am choosing to believe that she is not, in fact, hypnotized. She's just like, no, I have a girlfriend now. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like my argument for her not being hypnotized is, like, she has a really awkward expression at the breakfast table the next morning. I don't know if you, like, after they after they have sex, you see her the next morning and she's sitting really nervously at the table being like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. You, you can yeah. see her processing, like, fuck, like, this is my job. And yes. I have, like, potential. Like, and I, I felt the like same thing. There's such a clarity there to her processing. I think later... She is more under, like, later there's evidence that she's been placed under Carmilla's spell in a, in a way that is more, uh, like, hypnotism and mind control. But, like, at this point, it still feels very much like this is simply about her attraction. Yeah. And she, you know, tells – she's now kind of in service to Carmilla. Like, she turns Carl away. She lies about Emma having a friend with her, right? Because Carl knows what – um you know, he would know that that's that she's going from house to house because he saw her at Laura's house. So she's hiding that there's a there's somebody else there. She's kind of like a more of a Renfield sort of character. She's Femfield. <laughs> Femfield. She, yes, that would be a really good drag persona, by the way. Femfield. That really would be. That's amazing. Um, one of the. Then now that the father is gone, now that Mr. Morton is gone, Carmilla like controls the house. Uh, she's she's taken over. One of the male servants, Mr. Renton, says that he thinks Emma should see a doctor, but Madame dismisses him. She's like totally devoted to Carmilla and Carmilla's agenda now. Uh, Mr. Renton goes to the bar and he tells the barkeep about Emma. And he jokes about vampires and like everything stops. And the barkeep tells him of all the deaths in of young girls in the village. And he is now concerned. And he goes to the doctor. This is like all stuff with men. So I'm just like, okay, anyway, let's uh, move on. The, he goes to the doctor and he asks him to come see Emma. So in Emma's room, Carmilla appears. This is an interesting scene. Emma says she's dying and Carmilla says, yes, she is. And Emma says, well, I live until father comes home. And Carmilla says, perhaps. She's like thinking about it. (laughs) Carmilla kind of vacillates between wanting her victims to live and become her consort and also like accepting that they must die so that she can keep feeding um the doctor arrives and carmilla and madame perrineau are distressed and he insists on looking at emma and he says she's close to death so 
the rest of the film sort of becomes like the men vanquishing Carmilla. Um, he, Mr. Renton, like brings these garlic flowers into the room, and um, the doctor scolds him. But then we see that that is that was a ruse because he was just acting like that in front of Madame Perrineau, so that she doesn't suspect that they're on to her to them. Uh, he puts this cross around Emma's neck. And then Madame and Mr. Renton start to like fight over the presence of the garlic in the room. And uh, Mr. Renton is like a believer now and he brandishes the garlic at her and Madame like locks herself in her room. So she's like not exactly a vampire, but she's kind of a Renfield, right? Like she's under the vampire's spell. She also can't be around garlic. She can't be around crucifixes. Um Carmilla enters Emma's room, but she's repulsed by the flowers and the crucifix. So Carmilla descends on the doctor as he's leaving, riding through the woods, and she bares her fangs. So we see her fangs for the first time. And she kills the doctor very swiftly. <laughs> love it. We love. We love to see it. We love to see it. He like tries to fight her off. He like puts draws a cross in the dirt, right? But Carmilla's like no, and kills him. I was gonna say I love that he draws the cross, and it's totally it's useless. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Morton returns and he is all skeptical of the anti-vampire uh, treatments, but they bring the barkeep from the village and he tells him about the vampires. And he also tells the story that we saw from the beginning of the Baron Hartog who killed the Karnstein vampires. And Mr. Morton flees on horseback to fetch the doctor who's not shown up. Um... Carmilla asks the servant Gretchen to remove the garlic flowers so she can see Emma, right? But she, they keep trying to get the garlic out of the room, but they're not removing Poor it. Poor Gretchen. Poor, Poor Gretchen. Gretchen, right? This this chunk of the movie, I swear to God, like the parts with Gretchen just feel like they go on forever. Like the fight about the garlic flowers definitely could have like been less prominent. I'm like, come on, guys. I know. It, it's like over and over again. Like, all right. <laughs> yeah. the, I sort of like my notes, you can even tell I'm just like not as interested in this part of the movie because my notes are just like rushing through. Like, okay, we, we're done with the sexy stuff. So. I don't care as much anymore. <laughs> yeah, there are still great moments and like the big climax scenes like at the end. But yeah, this chunk of the movie with the garlic flowers is where things really start to lag because there are like too many men in this part. There's of the just film. too many men. Exactly. Mr. Morton runs into Carl and General Spielsdorf with Hartog in tow. Hartog from the beginning in the woods. And they show him the doctor's body. So Hartog and because he's, you know, been killed by Carmilla and Hartog and the generals scoop Morton and they tell him of their plans to head to the Karnstein castle and kill destroy the vampires there. So at the castle, this is when Hartog says he he was determined to avenge his sister's death and rid the world of the Karnstein vampires. He retells everything from the beginning of the film. The men are shocked that the vampire was a beautiful woman, which was interesting. I think they expected to be like this horrible monster. And that's when they're like, a beautiful woman, you say. (laughs) 
this part is so funny because Morton like finally puts it together. It's like everything has been right in front of him and he saw the doctor dead and he just took a long, a presumably long carriage ride with them where they were filling him in on the details. But apparently it's not until this moment when they like arrive and they see the portrait. And he's like, yeah. Oh my gosh, that woman is a guest in my house. Yeah. So they, they also see this portrait. Um, of Mirkala, right, who they recognize as Marcella slash Carmilla. And back at the house, uh, Renton is like entranced by Carmilla. She bites his ear. She strokes his neck. She's like doing what she's got to do, right? She's, but you can tell she's like not interested because they kiss oh, yeah. passionately and Carmilla like opens her eyes like bored while she's kissing him it's really like a means to an end (laughs) i really love i mean that's one thing i love about the film right because like they maintain like her interest in women here like this isn't a moment that feels particularly like exciting for the male gaze either like he's like he's foolish and he like thinks that he's lucky um and she's so clearly not into it and so clearly going to kill him without like any pleasure being involved from like the erotic encounter and like i really appreciate the way that scene is done totally and renton also is an idiot and thinks madame perrineau is the vampire um (laughs) right because she's a because she's so sinister yeah exactly she's sinister she's single (laughs) so uh hartog you know back at the castle right they see that portrait and um that mysterious vampire party city guy laughs in the distance and (laughs) renton now possessed by carmilla demands that gretchen (laughs) remove the cross from emma's neck and that the garlic be removed poor gretchen she's so confused like they keep confusing her with this fucking garlic and the crucifixes (laughs) and Renton and Carmilla make out again and she kills him good (laughs) I was was like kill him already I hate this guy Carmilla uh, absconds with Emma this is another one of my favorite scenes because Madame Perrineau begs her to take her with them and she cannot live without Carmilla. It's so sad. It's like she's watching her lover take oh choose this other girl over her. This is so sad. It's so awkward. It's like, oh wow, like you really like you you really did not communicate your boundaries between these <laughs> relationships clearly <laughs> made everything a mess like it's those moments where like where vampire movies are like about bad poly you know it's true it's just about bad yeah it's bad poly carmilla takes <laughs> and she looks so tortured to madame perino she's so good in this scene and carmilla takes her in her arms and kills her by feeding on her and Emma sees and screams in horror, and she passes out from being so weak. This is when Carl bursts in to save the day, and him and Amir Kala struggle, but he overpowers her, using his dagger as a cross and warding her off. And Markala like sort of apparates, <laughs> like she just fades, she disappears. <laughs> I love the moment where she just dis- where she disappears so much. It's such an incredible moment, and I really want there to be a gif of that because like that is such a mood. You know what I mean? Mood, it's like any time yeah. a man, any 
anytime a man is talking to me ever, like I just want to dissolve. Yes, he does. It re- it reminds me of like the meme of like Homer Simpson like backing into like the shrubbery. It's so eating. good. It's very that. Also, that scene where um she kills Madame Peridot and they like make out for a moment and they have this like last erotic moment. Apparently, on set, her uh Ingrid Pitt's fangs kept falling. Oh right, falling out. Like, yes, into her bra- into her in. cleavage. They kept yeah. falling right. Yeah, I just think that's such a funny moment. Yes, about. and she put, she put them in with chewing gum so that they would stay during that yeah. scene. Yeah. So there's like I love when she disappears. It got that nice cheesy cross dissolve, and Mirkala returns back to the Karnstein castle, but the group of old men are waiting there for her. And my note here is just boo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hate it. Hate it. Right? Mercala returns to her coffin and she looks so gorgeous asleep in this coffin. It's such a look. That was in my notes as well. Yeah. Like I have in my notes in the coffin. This is like the most gorgeous she's looked. This is when her eyeliner is the most on point. Yes. In the entire film. It's so good. And General Spielsdorf avenges Laura by staking Mirkala through the heart. And Emma can sort of feel it happening, like because she's psychically connected to Mirkala and she screams as Mirkala is staked. And when I first saw this movie, I thought Emma was going to die with her. Um, yeah, but, but she doesn't. Yeah, she's just released from the spell. And just to be sure, the general decapitates Mirkala and Emma is released from her spell and she looks healthy already. Her and Carl gaze into each other's eyes and barf heterosexuality wins again. <laughs> it's just like you are a really bad friend. Like that was your only friend's fiance right girl i know and he sucks too like he goes from one to the other and we see the portrait of mirkala this is a good moment where the portrait kind of withers and fades from being a beautiful woman to being a hideous skeleton and it's very dorian gray style uh very victorian um and that is the vampire lovers I I love that moment at the end with with the portrait when it fades into the skull with the fangs. And I think that like, I really try to like, you know, read this as positively as I can, like for the vampires. And I like to think that like, maybe we can believe that the scream that she utters isn't maybe the spell being broken. Like, who knows? We don't know, right? Like, we don't see it. The end of the novel is so ambiguous. It right? is. Like we have the sense that we have a sense that Laura is free, but she doesn't ever really forget about Carmilla. And she, you know, the last line is about like hearing the footsteps, which gives us the sense of her presence. I actually kind of like that we end on the the image from the portrait because there there is like this enduring sense of like the fangs, right? Like we end with the fangs. And the, yeah, the fangs are a really image. nice touch. And with that heavy frame narrative at the beginning with Baron Hartog. I love how there's like all this attention to him. Like I'm telling the story right now. I am closing the book. This is what I have written. It's my account. Right. And I think that like so many um, feminist critics who don't like this film read that as like, look, we see right from the beginning. This is the patriarchal like 
version of the story, right? Like they, this is like the women's voices are silenced and it's not like Laura telling her first person account. But I actually think that the frame narrative like draws attention to their very construction of the story. Mm. Because as we find out by the end of the film, his version was wrong. Yes. He writes this version where he's like, and I was the hero and I vanquished all the vampires. Well, obviously fucking not, bro. Because otherwise this movie wouldn't be happening. Right. No, I mean, that's that's true. I mean, it could be read as very ambiguous. Like, who's to say, you know, that Emma is – maybe Emma is not – the spell is not broken. Maybe Carmilla's soul has gone into her body, you know, and it's – maybe they are one now in that way. Like, who knows, Right. Yeah, I mean, that would be much more like Daughters of Darkness or right. like The Hunger, right? Which, yeah. You know, I would love for it to be a little bit more clear. But I do think at least with with the frame narrative, like, I think the frame, I think it only points out how, like, inept the men are. Like, I don't feel like it's full. I don't feel like it's their story. I feel like we're conscious of how much they want to tell the story where they are heroes. But if you watch the film, they are not heroes. Even if they kill Ingrid Pitt, they are certainly not like the amazing heroes that his narrative tries no, they're to kind of to bumbling too and like they're yeah. the way that they're just kind of like a group of annoying old men is very much <laughs> highlighted when they're at the castle like waiting for her you know it's not like a heroic kind of sexy men narrative it's just like these no. weird old guys with a with a vendetta <laughs> They're de- they're very bumbling, like, and it feels it feels very intentional that yes. we see them in in that way. Like, they don't feel particularly like I don't know, virile or powerful. No, or- not at all. Well, this was so great. Um, yeah. I'm so happy we got to talk about this. Where can people find you on social media? You can find me on Instagram at Miss Malice underscore switch and play, which is the amazing collective that I'm a part of. And you can find me on Twitter at Miss Malice SNP. Amazing. And you know where to find me. Girls Guts Giallo, Twitter and Instagram, patreon.com slash girls guts giallo. And I'll see you all next week. Bye.